0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
1: Now let's turn in our Bibles to the first letter of Peter, chapter 5. You'll find it on page 1220. If you're using the church Bible, we're going to read First Peter chapter 5, and beginning to read at verse 5, which addresses the young men, uh, but we'll go on to the older folks as we read on here, um, and just in case you think you can escape, um, young is a very stretchable idea in the ancient world. Um, can even stretch as far as 60. Hmm. That's good to know for some of you, isn't it? Those of you who are 59, it's good to know you're still young. So, 1 Peter chapter 5, the first four verses, he's been addressing the elders in the church. We've just been singing that we are wiser than the elders. That doesn't mean the Presbyterian elders. That means that you can be young and wiser than those who are older. And now he's turning in verse 5 to the younger ones and, and then to the whole congregation, really. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, cast all your anxiety on him, or perhaps better, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I had a call during the week from one of my best friends in all the world uh, and formerly a colleague in the United States, and during the course of the call, he, he said to me, "How's?" Peter doing, and I thought to myself, how kind of him to ask me. I said, "Well, it's very kind of you to ask." Actually, I said he was, he was forty three yesterday. Our second son is called Peter. At least we call him Peter. Other people, of course, call him Pete, but we call him Peter. And there was just—you're a very sharp fellow, my friend. There was just that momentary pause to give the game away, he said, I meant the apostle. And he was asking, so where are you in First Peter? So, for those of you who may be new this evening, we've been thinking about the way in which Peter's first letter addresses Christians in a pre-Christian environment, and for that reason is profoundly relevant to a post-Christian environment. In a pre-Christian environment, for example, idolatry and sexual immorality were regarded as normal. In a post-Christian environment, idolatry and sexual immorality come to be regarded as normal. And so, Peter is calling the church to sanctification to live as God's different people, to serve Him faithfully. And because they are being called to sanctification, becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus, He also needs to teach them in the second place about how to cope with suffering. These two things in the Scriptures, in the gospel, always go together. The supreme illustration, the sanctified one, the holy one, the Lord Jesus Christ, most holy, perfectly holy, demeaned, abused, the suffering servant. And one of the things that runs through First Peter, runs through indeed all of the New Testament letters that we can very easily miss because it's so, it's so embedded in the teaching that we almost don't notice it is how important the church is. The more Christians want to be holy and the more Christians experience suffering and persecution, the more likely they are to realize the importance of the church. Where the church is not regarded as particularly important, you can be pretty sure the Christians are not suffering persecution one of the ways in which God has designed the church, and this comes out in 1 Peter, is to be our family. That's the the central New Testament picture of the church. You gain a new family, and therefore you have security and support and ministry and a mutual prayer and a growth to maturity. And so, running through the whole of 1 Peter is his teaching on the church. And although he doesn't mention it here, clearly he's speaking now in these closing verses about life together in the church. He has addressed the elders who are to shepherd the church, who are the overseers, the bishops of the church, how to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in a Christlike way, to love and nurture care for the flock, to get their bodies in the front row of persecution if that means they can defend the sheep. And now, as he has been doing in the previous verses, he he goes, as it were, to the opposite side of things. When he earlier on addresses husbands, he also addresses wives. Now, having addressed the elders, he turns to those who are younger, and he announces what is the, the unifying theme of this whole little section from verse 5 through to the end of verse 7. The unifying theme is obviously humility. Young men, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. There's a famous letter of the early Christian Saint Augustine in which he says, speaking about Demosthenes, the great uh, Hellenistic rhetorician, when Demosthenes was asked, what was the chief rule in eloquence? He replied, says, Augustine, delivery. And the second rule, delivery. And the third rule in eloquence, delivery. So, says Augustine, if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian life, then first, second, third, and always, I would answer, humility." And that could almost be, uh, he might well have been reading 1 Peter chapter 5 that morning when he wrote the letter. Because the, the threefold division, the threefold direction in which Peter speaks here is, first of all, to the young, humility. Second, to our mutual relations with one another, humility. Third, in our relationship to the Lord, Humility. Humility, humility, humility. Now, you know, of course, that humility in the, in the Scriptures is not being shy. Humility in the Scriptures is not being groveling. Humility in the Scriptures is not in any wrong sense having a, a low self-image. Humility in the Scriptures is having a right view of yourself in relationship to God, in relationship to your own sin And inadequacy, in relationship to the overwhelming character of God's free grace to which you have contributed nothing, and in a recognition that your role in life is to follow the servant of the Lord and constantly to place yourself in a kneeling position before others and to say to them, either verbally, or simply atmospherically? How can I serve you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's important to notice, I think, in this context in which Peter's speaking to Christians in a pre-Christian world, humility was not regarded as a virtue in antiquity. Humility was never praised by the great writers of antiquity. Humility was despised. The humble, then you stand and stamp in their faces. In other words, where where there is a gospel-less society, where there is an idolatrous society, it will inevitably be the case that those characteristics that delight the Lord, offend the godless, and so th- there is nothing here in this passage in which Peter is saying now if if you if you just show a little more humility, people will really be impressed by you. Now he understands that if you live like the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace, there will be those who find the sheer power of the argument for the gospel that's found in your humility, they will find it irresistible. They will see that it has a heavenly and not an earthly source. But at the same time, he isn't recommending this as a way to defend yourself against persecution. He's not recommending this as a, as a way to dodge the bullets and the arrows recommending this as a way to grow in likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord and the servant of sinners. And he makes this abundantly clear. First of all, he speaks about the humility of younger people, the humility of younger people in relationship to the elders in the church. And I think he is speaking here about the elders in the church, although it applies to elders perhaps in some general sense. Humility is shown in those who are younger. And remember that many of those who are younger in in antiquity would be regarded as older in the 21st century. It's demonstrated in our willingness to be submissive to the elders. At the the root of the language Peter uses here is, is the idea of lining yourself up underneath the wisdom, the guidance, and the authority of the elders. And we might well say, since Peter goes on to tell us we've all got to be humble, isn't there something redundant about him poking his finger at those who are younger? I mean, why does he call out those who are younger and and specify them and say to them in particular, since since we are all to be led by the elders, why does he especially say this to the younger ones? One of the reasons is this. Um, When the apostles do this dual relationship exhortation. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Masters, treat your servants well. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't frustrate your children. They almost always spend most time on what is most difficult, And especially, they spend most of their time focusing on how it is that the person who is to be submissive is to be submissive. That is to say, they're sensitive enough to know most of us find it easier to have the first place rather than the tenth place. Most of us find it easier to have other people submitting to our will, and our wisdom than we find to submit to other people's will and other people's wisdom. And Peter recognizes this. And I suppose he's also conscious of this, Um, that uh, as my mother used to say when I was seven, much to my frustration despite the biblical exhortation to parents not to frustrate their children, Sinclair, she would say seven-year-old, there is no substitute for experience. And, you know, um, I was shrewd enough to try and keep my mouth shut, but inwardly I was, because I was brought up in Glasgow too. And it was, but that's not fair. I haven't had time to gain experience. I haven't had time to gain wisdom. And you see, when we are younger, that's uh, that's something we need to learn, because we do have a tendency to assume that, you know, wisdom began with us, more or less. And he's focusing; he's he's singling out the young people, uh, not in a lordly manner. He's he's told the others, "Don't lord it over the flock," but he's singling them out because there are certain things about being younger that may make it more difficult to be submissive to the leadership of the elders. One of them is this, that it's one of those things about getting older that you've seen it. You've been round the block. And either because you've grown in wisdom or because God has worked in you so that despite your foolishness, you have eventually come to see it, that patience in the work of God is enormously important. And of course, when we are young, in a way, we we don't have the the wisdom or the experience to know that God apparently likes to take His time to do things. Yes, God can do things suddenly. God can bring extraordinary awakening. But if you range over the whole of history, you would be bound to conclude that God seems to take His time. And the younger you are, the slower He seems to be. Mom and Dad didn't go to church when I was converted and I'm praying away for them as a, as a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old boy, a 16-year-old boy, Lord, Lord, why are you doing nothing? Until only as the story unfolded later on, you see, I didn't have the wisdom to see, didn't have the experience to see that the Lord was hearing prayer, that the Lord was working in His time and not in my time, you know what they, they say uh, to, to young ministers? Never overestimate what you can accomplish in a year, but never underestimate what you can accomplish in five years. And you see, if I try to accomplish in five years what takes ten years, or in one year what takes five years, I'm probably going to produce some kind of disaster. Now, of course, there are sometimes things that you need to do. You, you always in these things need to follow the teaching of Scripture. You need to resist sin. Of course, all of these things are true. But you know, when you're younger, you're you're usually much more interested in in truth than you are in peace. The purity of the church may mean much more to you than the unity of the church. And so, Peter is saying, now, younger ones, listen to the elders. They've been where you are. They have gone through things that they may not want you to go through. So, be willing to take the, the position of humility and listen more than you speak and receive more than you argue and watch even more than you act and and see what the lord has done in them and pray that he may do the same in you so so order yourself under their leadership and so this is his special word to the young young in the same way be submissive to those who are older. So, humility in those who are younger in relationship to the elders. And now, He speaks about humility in each of us in relationship to all of us. How is humility to be expressed in the the congregation? Well, there are many ways of expressing ourselves, aren't there? One of the ways we express ourselves is, is by the clothes we wear, Everybody almost expresses himself or herself in the clothes they buy and the clothes they wear. It's one of the the big giveaways. Did you see there was an article in one of the newspapers, at least uh, during the week, about getting a job in the city of London? You don't turn up with a dark suit and brown shoes. This is an interesting one. I don't know that anyone, I don't think anyone here falls foul of this, don't turn up in a white shirt. Apparently, these days, for those who understand these things, it's, uh, it's not cool, and it's probably a sign of insecurity that you've, you've overdone the interview by, by wearing the white shirt. I remember I was in the United States working at the time when the, the famous O.J. Simpson trial was on, and they wheeled out these psychologists who are paid huge fees by big law companies to sit there as the jury is selected and to whisper, try and get rid of him, try and get rid of her. I I learned something that I've practiced ever since. Do you know people, I don't think it's so common these days, but I've known people who, you know, when you saw their shirt with the pocket in it, you know, there were six different pens there you want him or her on the jury. But if, if, the, if the jacket opens and there's two pens, you don't want him on the jury. Why? Because he's probably a logical thinker. The other guy, you know, he's all over the map. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's just the way you dress with your all kinds of giveaways. Now, what's, what is it with the Christian? The Christian clothes himself or herself with humility. Actually, it's very interesting that that Peter here uses, at least in the New Testament, a very unusual verb, and it's the verb that would be used literally about a slave putting on an apron in order to do Dirty domestic duties, and i'm pretty sure that probably more than one place in these verses, but probably here, peter can 't write this you know clothe yourself put the put on the servant 's towel of humility, and you think at the background is John thirteen. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, that the Father had put everything into his hands. When supper was ended, he rose from supper. He girded himself with the towel. They hadn't washed one another's feet, and he went round the room. And of course, the, the, whole, the interesting thing is John 13 in the first section is kind of dominated by the conversation between Jesus and who. Simon Peter. To, to an extent that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterwards you'll understand. And it's almost as though here he's saying, I was too young. I didn't have the wisdom, didn't have the experience. I didn't know what was happening, but now I see it. He did say to us, what I've done to you, you do to, to each other. Incidentally, he even washed Judas Iscariot's feet. Isn't that something? No limit. I mean, think about it this way. Jesus knew Judas Iscariot was going to betray him, and yet he washed his feet. Think about it this way. There's somebody in the church that either you you know, you just don't hit it off with. Or if you're really proper in your English language, there is someone with whom you do not hit it off. And Peter's saying, clothe yourself towards them with humility. And he he gives us a, well, it's an encouragement to do this. He says, remember the teaching of Scripture, is in this interesting? You know, this is a real, is a real sign of Peter's growth. He, he thinks about things, and you see this in this letter, and Scriptures come into his mind, and the only way they can, can come into his mind is because he knew them. He was familiar with them. And so, he may well not have almost certainly didn't own a personal Old Testament. He had memorized it. And he, yes, this is the biblical promise. God resists the proud. And although it's not quite the same verb, it's got the same verbal root as the word he'd used to the young. Now, array yourself, set yourself under the elders. Stand there. And he's saying, younger ones, stand there under the leadership, the shepherding of the elders. And all of you remember that if you become proud the Lord himself will stand against you. He will find ways of frustrating you. So, he says, humble yourself. That's what we're called to do. Humble yourself because God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Isn't that interesting? Because the only way the humble can be humble if he's already given them grace it's just one of the the principles, isn't it? He or she who already has is able to take in more. He that is down, says Richard Baxter in his little hymn, he that is down need fear no fall. And so he's encouraging us to this, this beautiful life of of what am i going to wear today i'm going to wear the humility the servant towel of the lord jesus christ and you see when that becomes a conscious reality in our lives it, it really does does change things i was thinking during the week about uh, an occasion i was with one of my longest standing friends we were together we were seated at a table at a wedding reception and one of the serving staff came around, and there was enormous clatter, and things fell off the tray. They were just all over the shop, and there was proud Ferguson sitting at the end of the table, and this poor girl with all this stuff, everybody looking at her, can you, can you believe it that I turned to my friend, and I said, somebody should help that girl. Well, you know, he can—he's older than I am. He can issue a directive or two, and so I, my eyes were opened. I mean, I could see that she needed help, but you know, you, you can see that, and you—you you just don't make the connection to yourself. You know, the the priest and the Levite in Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan. We we we. You know, the things we say about these guys that the Scripture doesn't say. You know, we make up whole stories about what they were doing, and they become part of the tradition, and we're absolutely convinced the priest was thinking, I've got a service to conduct, I've a sacrifice to make. But maybe he was just thinking, somebody needs to help that fellow. And we're all wired that way, differently, yes, but, you know, so… I see myself. I had to get down on my hands and knees to help and thought, this is a real parable, isn't it? And that's, you see, that's that's what he's saying. Begin to think, allow this Scripture to penetrate your thinking about yourself and how you're going to relate to others. I mean, you you think about this in in all kinds of other respects, don't you? Who you're going to meet, what's going to happen in the office or at school or at college or in the neighborhood or on the golf course or whatever it is. And Peter's saying, don't let all that stuff master the way you're going to dress spiritually. Get Jesus the servant as the great picture of your dress code. And so he's saying this and you see people come in, this is the power of church life. People people come into a people come into a, a living church and and people are showing deference to one another, people are serving each other, people are gracious to one another, especially in a post Christian world. That's a phenomenon. I mean, isn't it interesting that in, in this entire letter to Christians who are suffering and are going to suffer persecution, he has no quick fixes. He's no, he, he doesn't say, here are, here are ten programs the church needs to start if you're going to witness to the world. In a sense, he's saying there's only one program. It's be like Jesus, and everything else will flow from it. And then, of course, He takes us to bedrock reality, the the younger ones showing humility in relationship to the elders, all of the members showing humility in relationship to all the other members, and now each of the members showing humility in relationship to the Lord. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. You know, Peter must have recognized he'd gone through this. He was an elder himself. He'd gone, he'd gone through the struggles with his pride, with his lack of humility, with his me-firstness, with his self-sufficiency. And so, now he's giving us a in a way, it's giving us an answer to the question. It's all very well to exhort us to become humble and even to give us motives for being humble. But how do we become humble? I mean, you can't wake up in the morning and say, Monday, I think I'll be humble today, or more humble than I was yesterday. It's not that kind of clothing that we can put on. So, How can we do this? And I think his his answer comes in two two pieces, two halves, intimately connected with one another. The The first thing he says is he tells us where and how to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now that's interesting. He didn't say just you know, humble yourself before God that would be right, but humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's language that if you know the Scriptures, kind of, it, it comes loaded into your mind. It, 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 it creates little explosions of all the different ways in which the Scriptures speak about the mighty hand of God. And I think in essence what he's saying here is, think about who God is. Think about what He has done. Think about His ways. Think about His hand. Remember the, the, the Psalm 1, one 2, three, is it? As servants look to the hand of their master, made servants look to the hand of their mistress, so we look to you. We, we want to know what that hand is doing. I've got ten points. It's okay, I'm not going to. What are those ten points? You can work them out yourself. Just think about the way in which the Scriptures take you from creation to final glorification in language that speaks about what God's hand does, how Psalm 8 speaks about his fingers participating in creation, how we're told about the the way in which God opens his hand and satisfies the needs of every living thing in creation and providence and in all his acts of redemption it's the mighty hand of god that brings salvation in the work of jesus christ what happened to jesus in the crucifixion and resurrection is what god's hand had predetermined would take place how did we come to christ we were drawn to him no one comes to the father or to me, says Jesus, unless they're drawn there by the Father's hand, and in our own Christian lives. And as we face chastisement, where ultimately do the the hard things come from? it's, It's like the prophet saying that the hand of the Lord was on me, and where do we get the power to live for His glory? The New Testament speaks about the, the hand of the Lord was upon us. And so, from beginning to end, our whole life, my times… Where are your times? My times are in your hand. Until the end, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore can you can you see that hand it's what's in that hand what what what's the sparkle the glory around that hand it's it's my pleasures forevermore and so you see my my whole all my affections and emotions are differently differently influenced by thinking of that hand in creation and thinking about it in providence and redemption and the way I've been brought to Christ and the way in which I've, I've been disciplined by Him and chastised by Him and the way in which there are pleasures forevermore at, at His right hand. So, so, as I think about that right hand, that kind of humility is is wrought into me that leads me to praise Him and to say, I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's actually what humility is. When He gets all the glory and you find yourself taking pleasure in that. Years ago, I was speaking at a conference, one of the sessions I wasn't speaking at, I noticed uh, a a man who was sitting 20 rows in front of me, maybe 15 rows. My eyesight was better then. And, and uh, he, was wearing a, he was wearing a pullover, a sweater, and, uh, and on the back of his sweater, just there, there was, a, there was an arm and a hand. This was a Christian conference. I thought, I wonder where he got that pattern. What a, what a terrific, I mean, what a terrific way to witness, to have a, a pullover that has a hand on your shoulder. Well, of course, then the hand moved. I realized it was actually his wife had her arm round him. (laughs) But that's it, isn't it? his, His hand is on our shoulder, and that's... In the, what is this, the NIV, you know, notice the translation here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And then it's an imperative, cast all your care on Him because He cares for you. But it's not an imperative in the the Greek text. It's a verbal participle. Now, you don't want to know this, but there are places where it's right to translate a verbal participle as an imperative. I don't think this is one of them. I think he's saying, now, this is this is what produces humility. When I not only humble myself under God's mighty hand, but as, as I, I do that, I'm casting my, my cares on Him. What's the connection between humbling myself and dealing with my pride and, and casting my cares? Because in some ways, our cares are, are really expressions of our self-sufficiency, or our desire to be self-sufficient, to to do it ourselves? And, And he's saying, no, no. There is a blessed release in casting your cares, your burdens on the Lord. Do you know, the same verb is used in, I think it's Luke chapter 19, when the disciples threw coats or blankets on the donkey that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on as the promised king. Now, that, that's a good picture, isn't it? What, what am I being invited to do? I'm invited to take my, my cares that, that cling to me. I, I can't get rid of them. And, and it's as though he's saying, now, think of yourself as throwing them onto the donkey. And King Jesus coming and sitting on them and subduing them and, and riding away with them. And so, these two things belong together. And one of the beauties of humility is, isn't this interesting? It stops me asking if I'm humble. It actually makes me self-forgetful because I'm I'm taken up with Him. I'm taken up with others. I'm finding pleasure in knowing God and serving God. And that's releasing me from this this terrible self-obsession. You notice, interestingly, in in our world, not only idolatry and immorality but complete obsession with the self. And you, and you see what it's doing. The more focus there is in our schools on telling our little boys and girls that they can be princesses and kings and they are beautiful and they are all the rest of it, the more effort that's made to raise their self-esteem statistically, the more that self-esteem is being destroyed. Why? because, you see, you've only got a proper view of yourself when you can forget about yourself. And this is what he's teaching us here, so that humility may be a despised virtue in antiquity and a despised virtue in the 21st century, but it's the most beautiful and liberating reality in all the world. And he promises that in due season, he'll exalt you. Maybe like Joseph, his hand will transform you and then through difficulties exalt you. Maybe like Peter, through your sin, you'll stumble and fall, and his hand will come and exalt you. But whether in this life or in the world to come, because there are pleasures forevermore at his right hand, think of it this way that if the whole of the rest of your life you went through experiences in which you felt that God's hand was a hand of chastisement on you, think of walking into that day and seeing the Lord face to face, and then realizing that you'd actually been looking at the shadow that His hand created, because His right hand was full of pleasures forevermore how do we know this is true? You know the answer, Jesus. It was true for him. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, made himself of no reputation, took the servant's place, washed the dirty feet, died upon the cross, And God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, exalted at his right hand in pleasures forevermore. And Peter is encouraging us, therefore, that humility brings liberation and is the pathway to marvelous glory. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the wisdom that You gave to the Apostle Peter, we know that it came through Your Holy Spirit, but we also know that He must have thought these thoughts, that these words didn't pass through Him as though He were just a recording machine, but they were expressions of the way in which You had shaped Him and molded Him in order that He might give us a passage of Scripture like this. And we pray that here in St. Peter's, among one another, and out in the world, where humility is despised, we may grow in likeness to Jesus Christ, and wear the servant's towel. And that not only may we be a blessing to to one another, so that the pleasures that are at your right hand forevermore may may actually infiltrate our church life here and now, and also that those who see us may be surprised by this humility, unable to understand, to to get to the bottom of it, may wonder what makes us tick, and that in your mercy you would find ways of pointing them to the Lord Jesus as you make us more and more like him. We thank you for the blessings we enjoy here. We're constrained to pray for Andy and his friends as they begin more publicly to live together as the family of Jesus Christ. And we pray that what we taste here with joy, they may soon taste in abundance. So here is we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.